You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now reading is from Galatians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 20. Galatians chapter 2, I think it's on page 1169 if you're using the church Bible. And uh, since this passage may strike a chord uh, in relationship to my voice and some of your memories, a word of explanation, a couple of sermons that I preached, I think, about seven weeks ago were on Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, just on that one verse. And uh, when David said to me, probably five weeks ago, what are you preaching on tonight? I was smitten in conscience. So this is a conscience-relieving exposition of Galatians 2, 11 uh, through 20. Not that I am taking something back, but I remembered I'd said somewhere in one of those sermons, we will eventually get to the context. And none of you noticed, certainly, either that you were all too gracious to say to me, what about the context? In those two sermons, we never got to the context. So, I don't know what condition your conscience is in, but my conscience was smitten, and I thought, next time, we'll get to the context. So, this is why we're back at Galatians chapter 2. So, let's hear God's Word. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he was clearly in the wrong Before certain men came from James, that is, in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Circumcision group is the Jewish Christians, Jewish by ethnicity and uh, with religious background in Judaism, who insisted on circumcision. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. A good number of years ago, I was in a room with a rather small number of Christian theologians. One of them had been fairly frequently attacked in a controversial way in public. We were simply talking together, and then to our astonishment, into the room came a man that this theologian had never met, a man whom he had never met, but was actually the person 
who had led the controversy. And they encountered one another face to face in public for the very first time. You can imagine that the hairs were beginning to stand on the back of our necks as we wondered what is going to happen in this room. I suppose that's the nearest I've ever come to the kind of experience that Paul is speaking about here, this very dramatic moment. I wonder if you noticed in these opening verses of our passage that Paul actually mentioned some of the most significant people in the life of the early church, the apostle Peter, James, who served for all practical purposes as the overseer of the great church in Jerusalem, Barnabas, who was the person who had looked for Saul of Tarsus and brought him under his wing to be a fruitful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul, who of course is here in person, although not in name. And these, these giant figures of the first few decades of the Christian church. And here, the Apostle Paul, the newcomer, the last of the apostles, who comes, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, as somebody who has been untimely born into this ministry, not somebody who was ever actually with the Lord Jesus, is facing down the great Apostle Peter, and telling him that his behavior has been contrary to the gospel. And the, the staggering thing about the situation is, it's not just Paul versus Peter. It's Paul versus Peter, and behind him, Barnabas, and as he goes on to say, behind him, all of the Jews. It's not one against one, or even one against two, or even one against three. It's the Apostle Paul against this phalanx of Christians, and he is facing them down, obviously because he believes something of enormous significance is at stake here. And what he's telling Simon Peter is that his behavior pattern has been contrary to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this must be something of immense significance. And what Paul does here throughout this letter, and then it's focused in these verses, is to, as it were, take us by the hand and lead us to what this issue is. And he does it, I think, essentially in three stages. First of all, the stage that he's already set in the letter and actually sets throughout the letter of the current situation in the churches in Galatia. The reason he mentions this historical incident from his past is because of the present crisis in the churches in Galatia. Every letter Paul writes, incidentally, addresses a problem. Every single one of his 13 letters has in view a problem. And so, one of the clues when we start reading and studying any of Paul's letters is to say, so what's your problem? And the problem that he is dealing with here is that his relationship to the Christians in these churches has been fractured. Uh, he, he tells them that there was a time when they would have plucked out their eyes and given their eyes to him when he had been with them. Apparently, he was suffering from some distressing eye condition. And there was such a bond of affection because he had brought the gospel to them. Because he had, as he says, he had gone into travail like a mother giving birth to her children. And so, these Galatian believers were his spiritual children. But now they'd begun to distance themselves 
because of influences that teachers who seemed to have come among them and insisted that if these believers as Gentiles were going to be fully endorsed Christians, they would need to take on board the markers that characterized Jewish Christians, the observation of the Jewish calendar, the observation of the Jewish dietary laws, and also, certainly the more extreme of them, had said, and in addition, you need to be circumcised. And this is the situation with which he is dealing, and he's desperately concerned about it. For example, he says to them, I am in travail all over again in order that Christ might be fully formed in you. He says to them, for example, in chapter 5, verse 2, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So, the stakes are enormous. Paul is fighting for salvation in these churches. Stumble here, Paul is saying, and although you may think this is just a a kind of incidental extra, what you're actually doing is selling the whole gospel shop, and the church will sink because you are, and this is the place where Paul uses the language, the only place where he uses the language, which is often used by Christians to refer to as something slightly different. What is happening to you is that you are falling from grace. Not that they are, as it were, simply backsliding, but that they are in what they are about to do, what they are being persuaded to do, what they don't seem to be grasping is that this teaching that is beginning to influence them is destroying the grace of God in the gospel. And take grace out of the gospel, and there is no gospel. Add something to what Christ has done for you that you need to, as it were, have in addition to trusting Jesus Christ. Add food laws observing certain days, observing the rite of circumcision, and what you have actually done is to destroy the gospel. And this is, as I say, this is the current situation in the churches in Galatia. And so, Paul does something very unusual for him. He only does this once or twice. He takes a long, slow look at his own past history. And you'll notice that essentially from chapter 1, verse 11, right through to the end of chapter 2, verse 20, he moves from the current situation in the churches in Galatia to the earlier crisis he had experienced in the church in Antioch. Now, Antioch was Paul's home church, wasn't it? And the interesting thing is that he had been brought there by Barnabas. Saul of Tarsus had been converted, he'd become a believer. Uh, There's a whole period of his life where he, he just seems to kind of disappear. And Barnabas, who had heard about him, heard that this persecutor of the church had been converted. Barnabas, who had been such an encouragement to other believers, had a burden on his heart to, to bring Saul of Tarsus into a ministry in which he would prove fruitful. And so, Barnabas went to look for him. It's a, it's a terrific illustration, actually, of a mature Christian being active in respect to the future of a younger Christian. You know, you know how it is in the professions. You know, the students complain about something, or the new doctors complain about the hours, and the consultants just look down their nose and say, it never did us any harm. And Christians can be like that. You know, I didn't, I didn't need any help to get where I am as a mature Christian. 
you with grave misconception may say to yourself, let these youngsters find their own way. But here is the here is the Spirit of the Lord in Barnabas, and he goes out of the way to, to look for this man, of whom people, of course, are very suspicious, naturally so. And a terrorist appears in your church. Okay, a terrorist appears in your church. You're in the Middle East. A terrorist appears and tells you he's been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Is everybody in the congregation going to say, they are not as naive, incidentally, as we Western Christians are? Is everyone going to say, great, embrace him? What if somebody whose murder he was involved in happens to be your cousin or your brother, your mother? And so Barnabas is a hugely significant figure in, in Paul's life. We, we cannot measure how important Barnabas was to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Apart from Christ, the only other figure as significant in Paul's life actually was the martyr Stephen. There is no doubt about that. And so here is uh, Simon Peter. And Peter, Peter's the one who opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles, isn't he? In that vision he has in Acts 10, this, this sheet that comes down with all these unclean animals and in the, in the vision, God is saying to him, get up and kill them and eat them. And uh, Peter's stomach goes a little collywobblish. Uh, not because he's worried about killing them. I mean, he was a rural individual. He'd probably knocked the heads off many a, sh- uh, not sheep, what they look after, fish in the past. But what's, what's his, pro- his problem? His conscience. This is unclean. I can't do that. My conscience is too, my conscience would never let me. And uh, what he's beginning to discover is that the church of Jesus Christ is the internationalized covenant community. And all those arrangements that had been made for the interim period between Moses and Jesus, they're all, they're all in the shelf now. Their sold by date is gone and past. And Jesus himself had shown that all foods were clean for those who trusted in him. And so Peter goes and he eats with the Gentiles. That was one of the things he was accused of doing. Peter has eaten with the Gentiles, but the gospel had broken through. Somebody, this is amazing really, it took them quite a while for the power of the gospel really to break through into their lives. It took a vision and the, and the appeal of Cornelius and the coming of the Holy Spirit just as he had come on the day of Pentecost to uh, introduce Simon Peter to ham and eggs, bacon and eggs, pig and eggs for his morning breakfast. And then he'd come to Antioch. What was he doing in Antioch? He was the, he was the apostle to the Jews, remember. Uh, what was he doing in Antioch? Well, why would you have gone to Antioch? You want to see what's going on there. God is doing great and glorious things. And Peter comes down, and it looks as though he's having the time of his life. He loves these bacon and egg breakfasts in the morning, and his bacon sandwich in the middle of the day. And he's having, a, he's having a whale of a time. He really is. This is, I have a friend who left his native land and went to another land, neither of which will be named in your presence. And he came alive because all the pressures that had been upon him to fit into the, the expected format of life, where he had been and where he had been known, he he was released from all of these things, and the, the joy, the liberty, he became himself. And this is what Peter had discovered. He had discovered the freedom of the gospel. He had discovered that all the, all the elements of the law of Moses that had regulated life for a season, they had... It, it was only when he took them off that he realized what a heavy burden that had been. You know, was being picky about your food, 
always making sure. It was the way God had, had got under their skins and even into their taste buds to help them to realize, you are my special people and you're very different from everybody else. But now that was being done in a completely different way and, and it, was like a, it was almost like a burden that Peter had shed. I remember hearing that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom those of you who are over 60 may have heard preach, said he never realized the burden he was carrying when he was minister of Westminster Chapel until he retired. And that's how it is, isn't it? When you, when you retire, when when the responsibility is no longer there, when the expectations are no longer there, when the, 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 the demands are no longer there, it's only then that you realize, golly, what a burden I was bearing. And this is what happened to Peter. And then the door opened. They were having more bacon sandwiches. And the door opened. And in walked these guys who had come from James. Now, that sounds dark, doesn't it? Who is James? What does this mean? It means they came from Jerusalem. It means they came, and we, we need to be somewhat sensitive to them. It means they came from a crucible in which everybody was pointing their finger at them and saying, you cannot truly be the servants of the Lord because you are speaking against the temple and you're speaking against the law of Moses. You see, if you were still, if you were still carrying the burden around, that were these people kind of almost free from the burden and saying, Jesus has, has made us free. And yet these people are saying, we're being faithful to the Old Testament Scriptures. I mean, think about the pressure on these early Christians in Jerusalem and therefore how difficult they found it to break out and to say, no, the gospel has made us a new international people. We are one with Gentile dogs who come to faith in our blessed Lord Jesus. And you see, in they come when he's, you know, just about to take another bite hope I'm not overdoing that sandwich here. And you can almost… Have you ever had this experience? You've just been about to bite into something, and you've been in another country, and somebody says, do you like octopus? <laughs> you, know, you, you know? Do you like dog meat? And you can… You know, I'm just imagining this. This isn't in the text, but… I'm imagining this, that, that he, he, he's just about to take another bite of his freedom. And in they walk, and his jaw drops, and the sandwich comes out his mouth, and he puts it down, and he turns to the Gentiles who are, you know, they're, this, is the, this is the church supper, pot, ham, luck supper. And he says, excuse me, I need to excuse myself. And these Gentile Christians, they all, well, you know, we know what he's going to do. But no, he moves over to another table. And uh, he goes to the, the buffet line. And uh, he picks out some fish. And, you, you know, they're, they're Christians of all kinds in Antioch, just, just like here, you know. And some of them think, that's a bit odd. And, and some of them may be thinking, you know, maybe some of the doctors in the church saying, touch of indigestion, you know. Uh, some people find that with ham, don't they? Um, but Paul understands what's happening. He understands, and he actually says this. And just in case for a moment we think this is the end of this relationship, almost the very last word Simon Peter wrote in his recorded letters, First Peter and Second Peter, almost his last words are to refer 
to the letters of the beloved Apostle Paul. So whatever happened here, it didn't fracture the relationship. Whatever happened here, it looks as though Peter took it right on his Galilean chin. But as Paul saw what was happening, I'm not suggesting this happened all at the same time, but but you can imagine it happening. That uh, a few minutes later, dear Barnabas gets up. He slides his ham sandwich into his pocket and he slides over to the fish tray and he goes over and joins his friend Peter. And then, you know what we're like. We're all like this, aren't we? You know, one and another. You know, the people with the Jewish, Jewish Christian background, they're made to feel guilty now, aren't they? And, you know, help, I shouldn't be doing this. The Jerusalem folks have come. You know what it's like. You go, you go to another church and it happens to you. Or you come to this church, maybe. You know, maybe you've been in another church where people are all over the place and, you know, swaying and swinging. And you, you come in here and we're singing unaccompanied psalms. And you, you think, you know, be a bit careful here, you know. Don't, don't want them to think badly of me. And Peter sees them beginning to drift. And just imagine this all takes place just, you know, in, in the space of an hour. And uh, you see, Paul has seen that what has happened to Peter has had a knock-on effect on even Barnabas. I can't read these words without thinking of an interview I saw with Margaret Thatcher in the day when her cabinet turned against her, and I remember her saying these words, and even Peter Lilly, she said, and he was a real believer. I thought things had gone a bit messianic at that point, but that's what I hear, and, and it's even, can you imagine, even Barnabas, Barnabas, who was so brave, so courageous when when many Christians were suspicious about me, he searched me out. He brought me to Antioch. He gave me a ministry there. And they launched me into all of my missionary journeys. To them I reported. Here, he's saying, here in Antioch, I face this crisis. And I knew there was only one thing I could do. I knew I couldn't deal with this by going to the Jewish Christians that he had referred to, you know, to, to little, to little uh, Zachariah Christian, because uh, this was something right at the heart of the church. And so I needed to go straight for the jugular. And so I faced down to his face, I said, you are compromising the gospel. It's interesting, isn't it? The language that's used here does not suggest that Peter didn't understand the gospel. What they're accused of is hypocrisy. That is, understanding the truth of the gospel, but not living out the truth of the gospel. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you aren't or pretending not to be something you are. And it was the latter in this case. Peter had been liberated. These young Christians and Barnabas, they had been liberated into the joy and pleasure and freedom of the gospel. But they were pretending to be something that was contrary to the truth that the gospel had taught them who they were. I read just the other day in somebody's blog site uh, a newspaper report of a woman who joined a search party for a woman who was missing. And it took her ages to realize that this search party was looking for her. It can be very confusing. And that's what was beginning to happen. 
And Paul recognized, unless I deal with this right at the heart of the matter, unless I face down this man who has had these ripple effects because he is so respected, and if I don't deal with his hypocrisy, then this whole church that God has so marvelously blessed is going to be in grave danger of collapsing. And so, you see, what he's doing for these Galatians is this, this whole section is just one big personal illustration. It's like a let-me-tell-you-what-happened-to-me-once illustration. Just in passing, notice a couple of things here. Um, Notice that Peter didn't, that, that Paul didn't do this behind Peter's back. I think that's really, it's not something that's emphasized, but it, it's something that just comes out, isn't it? I, I did it to his face. I didn't, you know. What integrity. And then he says, I did it in front of them all. Now, don't turn that into a principle. You know, don't get up in the middle of the service, you know, and kind of point your finger at me and say, you, sir, you know. There was a reason why he did this in front of them all. It was because it was trickling down into all of their lives, and they needed to see this issue settled once and for all, even if it was. It must have been enormously sore for Paul, never mind for Peter. And his deep concern, as he says here, is that they were not living in a way that was consistent with the gospel. You notice that's his words in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, the word he uses is kind of essentially the idea of walking straight you know, I don't know if they do this still, do they? None of, hope none of you knows, but, you know, at least it used to be that in police stations there was a white line, you know, and when they caught you and they would take you in and say, now, Mr. Ferguson, walk the white line. You know? <laughs> what were they testing? They were testing the level of alcohol in your blood to see whether something had intoxicated you. And there had been a, there had been a sinister, noxious intoxication here. And uh, they, they weren't able to, they weren't able to walk the line of the gospel. And you see, when a church, when that happens to a whole church, that they cease to walk the line of the gospel, what is it that disappears? The line remains, but the gospel disappears in their lives. My, we see this all around us, don't we? And this was Paul's profound concern. So, what does he do? He he spreads before us the current situation in Galatia. He helps them by speaking about the earlier crisis that there was in Antioch, and then he focuses their minds on the foundational truth of the gospel. If you have the church Bible, the New International Version, you'll notice that there are quotation marks at the beginning of verse 15. Because the translators, there are no quotation marks in the original text of the New Testament, by the way no quotation marks at all, or punctuation marks. So, what's happening here is that the translators assume that this is a continuation of Paul's speech. If you're using the English Standard Version, you notice that the quotation marks come to an end at the end of verse 14, and these verses are assumed to be Paul now addressing the Galatians, bringing out application. I think there may be a middle way, and that is that what Paul is now recording is not simply what he said to Peter when he's eyeing him face to face. 
But you, we can imagine him taking a step back and then saying, no. He's turning to Peter and Barnabas and those who have come down from James and the Jewish believers in Antioch. He's saying, no. Now, let's, let's see what this is all about. And I think that is why he begins by saying in verse 15, now, we who are Jews by birth, you see, they're dividing the church apart from anything else into first and second class citizens. And so he's, he's turning, as it were, and he's saying to, to Peter, to those who have come from Jerusalem, to Barnabas, to these Jewish believers who have been led. And now he says, we who, are, we who are Jews by birth. Barnabas may have been an exception, but you get the point. So what is his message? Well, his message is to restate the way of justification before God in verses 15 and 16. He says, we who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. We know. You see, there are Gentile sinners in the room. He says, we who are Jews by birth are not, not Gentile sinners. We know something that we share with these Gentile sinners. But none of us is justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing he's just done. You see how he's He's drawn in these Jewish believers. See, still thinking up here, we are not Gentile dogs. And so he walks towards them, doesn't he? He says, now we believers. You know, we who sit on the left-hand side of the church, I aren't like these fusspots who sit on the right-hand church. You see, you're, I'm with you. you. You're with me, aren't you? But what he's going to say is, we're still in the same church. We are justified in exactly the same way. This is the foundation of our fellowship because this is the foundation of our salvation. There are not two ways of salvation. There's not a way for Jewish believers and a way for Gentile believers. We who are Jewish believers, he says in verse 15, and who were never Gentile dogs, we're saved in the same way as Gentile dogs. You can see how that breaks through every kind of division that there might be in a church. Rich and poor, wise and simple, educated, uneducated, male and female, Scots and English, sometimes the biggest divide. No, he says, we're all saved in exactly the same way as the Gentile dogs are saved. We're all dogs, he's saying, in God's sight. This is just a trial run, as it were, for what he's going to say in his letter to the Romans. And so his first point is to say, let's remember that we share in exactly the same way of salvation, justification by faith in Jesus Christ without the works of the law. And then he defends what he's just said, doesn't he? He says, well, he says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, verse 17, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Now, this is a little tricky, but what he may be saying is this. So, I've just said, you're Gentile dogs, haven't I? Oh, you might say, so you're you're saying Christ turns us into Gentile dogs, are you? You see, they're, they're probably not all thinking this. There are always some people, in, you know, there are always some wacky people in every congregation somewhere or another, all picking away at things. Clever people saying, don't you see the logic of what you've just said? If we are all saved in the same way that the Gentile dogs are saved, then you're, you're saying that, we are, we are, that Christ has made us Gentile dogs. And you see, Paul immediately cuts this down to size. He says, absolutely not. The truth of the matter is the boot is on the other foot. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. You see what he's saying? He's saying, how did you Jewish believers come to this justification that the law of Moses couldn't provide for you? 
And what was the implication of that? You accepted it when Peter preached the gospel to the Gentiles and ate with the Gentiles. You accepted it that we are justified by grace through faith and not by the works of the law. We are all the same, every single one of us accounted guilty before the judgment seat of God, and our only hope is in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That means none of us needs to be subject to the food laws and to circumcision and to the calendar of the Old Testament Mosaic ordinances. None of us. But if you start putting these things back on top of what Jesus Christ has done for us, you prove to be the lawbreaker because you have failed to see that in this sense Christ himself was the goal of everything that was in the law of Moses, and he's brought it to a consummation. And if Christ, having brought to a consummation all these pictures, that scaffolding of the Old Testament, and now that the building is in place and the scaffolding is taken away, if you start putting the scaffolding up again, you hide the building and you become the lawbreaker. So, it's a marvelous defense of his principle that justification by grace through faith liberates us from all of those elements of the law of Moses. And so, he explains to them by way of personal testimony, well, what did the law do to me? It killed me, he said. I, through the law, died to the law that I might live, he says, for God. What does he mean by that? One of the things he means is this. It was through the law and its curse being exhausted in Jesus Christ because all the ways in which the law condemned Paul were poured out upon the Lord Jesus. I, through the law and its curse, died to that law in order that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live, and yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that in verse 21, he clarifies all the issues. So I do not set aside the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you follow this road that you have begun, adding to Jesus Christ. You thereby subtract from Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, in your thinking, it's not what Christ does. It's what I've done that really matters. Now, all kinds of applications of this, and it would take, and I'm not going to go back to Galatians 2, 11 to 20, but let me simply give you the headings. The first is this. What Paul is saying here needs to impact my mind, my conscience, and my heart. It needs to impact my mind so that I'm absolutely clear that the basis for my acceptance with God is found in Jesus Christ, not in my works, not even in the works of my sanctified Christian life. We get the first point, most of us who are Christians, don't we? I'm not justified by my past works. But how easily our our present works become the grounds on which we think God is going to be gracious to us. And we smuggle that rubble back into our relationship with God, and uh, eventually it leads to a kind of bondage, doesn't it? It leads to a, a way of thinking about God that He's He's basically dissatisfied with me because he's looking on what I do, 
Paul is saying, you'll never be able to do anything for Christ until you understand that He's looking at you on the basis of what He has done for you. It needs to touch our conscience for this reason. The gospel cleanses our conscience, but salvation doesn't immediately instruct our consciences perfectly, does it? And several places in the New Testament where this was an issue. Christians who said, my conscience would never allow me to do that. Others, we're free in conscience to do that. How does the Bible solve that problem? Does it say, well, you've got your conscience, I've got my conscience, she's got her conscience, he's got his conscience, everyone's got a conscience. Just live according to your conscience. Well, you should never transgress your conscience, but you should never assume that your conscience has been calibrated perfectly according to the gospel. And your conscience needs to be instructed and informed by the gospel and not by itself. It needs to be recalibrated, educated, made sensitive to God's Word and not just to the cultural or even religious or traditional elements that have put it together. See, that was what happened with these fellows turning up from Jerusalem. The old conscience rose to the ascendant, didn't it? I don't think I should be doing that. Isn't that interesting? Even Peter And you see what was happening? His conscience was being informed by these people and not by the gospel. And this is a lifelong process, isn't it? So it touches our mind, it touches our consciences, and it touches our heart for this reason. That when we go back to thinking that any element of our acceptance with God is based on our performance of the demands of the law, then we end up, don't we, like faithful in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember how he was running down the hill and Christian met him and asked, what's to do with you? He said, as I was going up the hill, somebody came and he started beating me and beating me and beating me. I said, have mercy on me, just have mercy on me. And whoever it was said, I don't know how to show mercy. He kept on beating me until a man came along who had nail prints in his hands and he set me free. Ah, said Christian, the first man, <laughs> I know who he was. That was Moses beating you to death. He can't show mercy. The demands of the law cannot show mercy. That's not what they're there for. the man with the nail-pierced hands. That was Christ. And he delivers you from the law of Moses. And then he empowers you by his Holy Spirit to keep the law of God that, yes, was enshrined in those Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses. But everything else, it just drops away. You've met Moses, haven't you? Huh. We all meet, some of us meet Moses every single week. Bang, down again, bang, down again. You're not doing well enough, not doing good enough. You're not doing all the right things. And he doesn't know how to show mercy. You can't say to Moses, Moses, look at what I've done. Look at what I've added to what Jesus gave to me in my salvation. Surely, surely you'll, surely you'll say to God, this is an okay individual, and he'll keep beating you. Christ, this is, what, this is why Paul is so passionate about it, that Christ sets us free from that awful burden of thinking that unless I do it, 
I'll never be accepted. And brings us to the position where we understand that the reason we do it is because we've been accepted. And that, as Paul later will say, is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Heavenly Father, thank you that you gave Paul whose own conscience must often have beaten him down because he was the chief of sinners and was on the verge of destroying the whole church that your son purchased with his own blood. Thank you that you so delivered him and gave him courage that he was able to do this. Thank you that you gave Simon Peter the grace to take it on the chin and to continue to embrace his brother. Thank you that you saved the church in Antioch. Thank you that you speak to us through this letter to the Galatians. We pray, however it applies to our lives, that you would, you would work down deeply in us that we may live as Christ's free men and women and therefore find the commandments of God as we have been singing become sheer delight to us, not because our obedience is the condition of our acceptance, but because our obedience is its fruit. So we give ourselves to you again this evening and pray that you would help us to live and that measures of that sweet freedom that we have in Jesus Christ may fill our hearts and rule our lives. And we pray this for his sake. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.